All right, Proverbs chapter 11 is where we're going to begin this morning. Um, Corbin mentioned he, he lost his voice completely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, if you don't mind, pray for me throughout uh, the morning as well. I, we, uh, we dropped our son off for an internship uh, this week, and when I got off the plane to come home, uh, my head was really bothering me, so I dropped in. One of my doctor friends worked me in, and, and uh, she uh, informed me that I had a double ear infection and a sinus infection. So all week long, I've kind of been having a hard time stringing complete sentences together. So this morning could be an adventure for all of us. All right, I'm going to start with a little story. Um, after my sophomore year, I spent the, the whole summer in Spain on a mission trip. I was with two other Aggies and uh, three students from Moody Bible Institute. And uh, it's a team of six of us. It was a great summer. We had a really fun time. Learned a lot of stuff. But uh, one of the things that was challenging for our team is that we, we were six college students, six peers, but we didn't have a leader of our team. And we really needed a leader for our team, and so I just felt like it was completely appropriate for me to appoint myself as the leader of our team. And I did a great job leading our team. They had a great experience under my leadership, and we got a lot done. And then at the end of the summer, uh, as we were, we were doing our debrief, we had, to, we had to evaluate one another and the places we went and the missionaries that we stayed with. And then one of the missionaries sat down with each of us and kind of walked us through uh, the debrief so we would get some, some lessons learned. And um, so I was sitting there talking with the, the missionary, and he, he was walking me through the summer, and he said, you know, uh, you got some feedback from some of your, your fellow students, and uh, one of the things that, that they said, and here, let me see how they said it exactly, was, oh, um, sometimes Brian was a bull in the china closet. <laughs> I was like, I cannot believe that they did not fully appreciate how great a leader I was, right? I mean, they just didn't understand the value that I added to their summer. Or maybe uh, I just needed to learn a little more humility through the summer in the process. Uh, and I did, I hope, because I want to be humble, genuinely. I, I, I believe that humility is better than, than pride, but honestly, there's something in my nature, and I'm going to argue there's something in your nature that uh, fights against, resists humility. Humility is, is a hard sell in our culture. Uh, interestingly, humility has always been a bit of a hard sell in every culture. If you look uh, in Jesus' day, ancient Near East, before that, uh, humility was regarded as weakness and pride was a virtue. Uh, but in the Bible, humility is a virtue and uh, pride is something to, to, to fight against. But it's, it's hard to sell in our culture. Uh, my, my good friend Matt Morton actually wrote a book, a whole book on humility a few years ago, and he couldn't find a publisher who wanted to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Publisher said, we can't sell a book on humility. So I told Matt, maybe you should rebrand it as a self-help book. Because, right, there's big, you know, there's book, you know, book after book on the shelf of, of self-help. But humility, not so much. On the other hand, uh, just a generation ago, among the, the Christian faith, there was a man named Andrew Murray that wrote a bestseller. And the title was Humility. And in his book, he made this observation. He said, the root of all virtue and grace of all faith and acceptable worship is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive and bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. So what Murray was observing is he said, uh, that's actually the root virtue. That's the foundation virtue. That's the virtue from which all other virtues spring because if you're a humble person, you're a teachable person and you can learn and you can grow. And so he said, that's the root of all virtue. And so you know, we, we've all read the word and we agree we want to be humble people. But pride is set against it. And the title of this message is Pride Versus Humility. 
They're in opposition to one another. And in a sense, you really have to choose one course in life. Even if you choose the path of humility, we're, we're never going to completely wipe out pride, but we can choose that path as opposed to the path of pride. And so as we walk through this comparison and contrast between pride and humility, I'm going to challenge us at the end to choose a path and to choose the path of humility. So where we're going to start, book of Proverbs chapter 11. If you're not there already, chapter 11, verse 2, or you can read it along with me here on the screen. Solomon wrote this. He said, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. So here's the problem of pride. This is where I want to start this morning. The problem of pride is this. Uh, Every single one of us has pride deeply rooted inside of us. We're we're born with it. It's, it's It's just in the fiber of our being. Again, Quoting from Andrew Murray, he said, There is nothing so natural to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. He says, It's natural to us. Because we're fallen people, pride is just, it's rooted into our fallen nature. Uh, Even Benjamin Franklin, whose uh, orthodoxy was really in question, he made this observation about human nature. He said, There's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility, right? It's like, yes, I've arrived. Oh, no, I haven't, right? I'm, ah, mm, I'm trying, I'm struggling. No, I'm not there. It's deeply embedded in us because we are fallen creatures. If you look at the story of creation, We understand that angelic beings were created before humanity, and among the angelic beings, there was one who was more beautiful and lovely and wise and powerful than all. His name was Lucifer, and he fell from his station because of pride. Ezekiel chapter 28, there's actually a a denunciation of the king of Tyre, and in this denunciation of the king of Tyre, he's compared to the fall of uh, Satan or Lucifer, and this statement is made about him. It says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. You were beautiful. You, were, you, were, you had splendor. You had uh, strength and you had wisdom and you had, you had all kinds of, of, of traits that exalted you, but you grasped them as if you were not a creature, but they were of your own making. And as a result, Satan fell, right? Because he exalted himself. It's Charles Spurgeon who said, uh, one time he was preaching a sermon, and, and as he stepped off the stage, this woman came up to him and said, Pastor Spurgeon, that was just an excellent sermon. It's a wonderful sermon. It's really amazing, whatever. And, you know, he, he said, you know, uh, Satan whispered the same thing to me as I was walking down the steps. That's, that's the root of Satan's demise, and it's what he's infected us with. In the Garden of Eden, he came and he whispered to Eve, and he said, you don't have to stay where you are as a creature. You can be equal to the creator. Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, that is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, uh, you can bring God down and you can rise up and you will be like God. That's the root of our fallen, sinful nature it is pride. So how do we define specifically the word pride? I want you to turn to chapter 6 of Proverbs in verse 16. 
Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Solomon wrote, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Notice where he starts. These are the things that are an abomination, haughty eyes, proud eyes. The, the word for pride means to lift up, to exalt, to, to boast. In Greek, there's another word that means to shine, to make something shine brightly, that is to exalt. What did Eve do? Well, she exalted self and tried to bring God down. That's the root uh, and essence of, of pride. But I, but I want to argue that there is actually something, in a sense, that's, that's legitimate in us, that we, we do long to be known. Right? We want to be seen, we want, and we want lives that are uh, important and have impact, and, and that's a natural thing, that we would want to be, in a sense, uh, acknowledged and appreciated. Um, if, I, I want to give you one illustration for, of this from Matthew chapter 20. If you want to mark your place here in Proverbs, turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read a couple paragraphs here, Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. This is a, a narrative about part of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. It says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, we are able. He said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there is so much to unpack in that short little narrative. Um, the, the fact that, you know, Jesus tells them that he's going to be crucified, and then immediately the conversation is about who's going to be the greatest among them, which apparently was the pattern. It seems like, you know, every time he was telling them about his crucifixion, they really weren't paying attention. They were discussing and debating who would be the greatest among them. Another thing we should unpack, but at a later date, is the fact that they sent their mom to ask on their behalf. I mean, that's pretty, pretty sketchy right there, but, uh, you know, whatever. The one point I want you to see in this narrative is this. Jesus does not condemn them for wanting to be great. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus does not condemn them for wanting to be great. Instead, he informs them about how to be truly great. Their desire and longing for greatness is natural, to be seen, to be known, to be acknowledged, to have a life that's, that's, that's important and has impact. That is rooted in our nature as creatures made in the image of God. What he does is he informs them how to be great and when to be great and whose, and whose eyes to be great. But it is natural for us to want our lives to have impact 
on this world. Now, for those of you who've been around uh, for a while, this will not surprise you, but when I was playing Little League baseball, I kept my own statistics. Right? I, kept, I kept data on our team. Right? I, I'm sitting in the dugout and I'm calculating because you know, I've, just, I've, always, I've always loved numbers even back then. And um, I remember one season, I was, I, was really, I was hitting well. I mean, I was hitting really, really well. My on-base percentage was the highest on the entire team, but I was batting like sixth or seventh in the lineup. So I went to our coach and I showed him the data, right? I showed him the data that I had been collecting, which demonstrated I needed to be batting like first, second, or third in the lineup, right? That just makes sense for the good of the team. I should be higher in the lineup. And, you know, I'm sure he, he probably thought, there's no eight-year-old who actually keeps his own data, but I did. I had my own statistics on the team. Uh, and, you know, I... I I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be acknowledged. The question is, when, when does that, in a sense, cross over into pride? What are the symptoms, in a sense, that we've crossed over into pride? I want you to turn back to Proverbs again with, the, with me. It's Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 17. Proverbs 10, verse 17. It says, he is on the path of life, who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. One of the first symptoms of pride in my life is when I am not teachable. When I don't receive input when it comes to me, when I am defensive, the humble actually seek out input. They seek out uh, the, the influence of others on their thinking and on their actions. One of the symptoms of pride is when we are not teachable to others. Another symptom of pride is when we are always in conflict with others. Turn to chapter 13 and verse 10. Proverbs 13, verse 10. Through insolence or pride or arrogance comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Uh, People who are constantly in conflict are people who are proud. Turn to chapter 28, verse 25. Proverbs 28, verse 25. It says, An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. When we're always in conflict, it's a symptom that we are proud. If we are easily offended, that's a symptom of pride. I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but if you're one of those people who's just always offended, that your buttons are just right there waiting for people to push, and you're super sensitive, that's actually a symptom of pride because you believe that you deserve to be treated better. And somebody doesn't treat you as you deserve to be treated, and you pop, and you pop, and you pop. And people are always dancing around you. They're walking on eggshells around you. That's actually a symptom of pride. Another symptom of pride uh, is when I find myself uh, not praising others, not sharing the credit, not giving the credit to God or to others, but instead lifting up, exalting myself, right? That's the definition of, of pride, something that is lifted up boasting, shining. Where does it come from? Uh, I'm going to argue that there are two fundamental sources of pride. One is foolishness and the other is fear. Okay, foolishness and fear. By foolishness, I mean this. We don't actually see life as it actually is. That's foolishness. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if there is no God, I guess I have to be God, right? Adam and Eve. Pulling God down or removing God and exalting self. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's foolishness, right? 
I remember one of my, my kids, uh, this child was growing up, and maybe even to this day, uh, one of this child's phrases was, I got this. I got this, Dad. You know, no matter what the, the task was at the house, I got this. Homework problem, I got this. SAT prep, I got this. Applying for college, I got this. It was just always, I got this. So much so that I gave that child that nickname. I got this. I got this is coming home right now. I got this. I got this. I go, really? You got this? Go for it. Wisdom is realizing that we're, we're just creatures made in the image of God, but we're also fragile and we're broken and we're needy. That's who we are. I was reading a story about a guy uh, just this week. He was describing his time. He was pumping gas, and as he was pumping his gas, there was a, a homeless man sitting there, and he could tell the guy wanted to ask him for something, and so he's just kind of turning his back a little bit, you know, but the guy's just right there, didn't leave, didn't leave. Finally, he said, I just felt guilty, and so I finished pumping gas, and I turned, and I said, um, do you need help? And so the man responded to him like this, very convicting. He said, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? So I think sometimes pride is a result of our foolishness. We don't actually see life as it is. We don't see ourselves as we are. The other is fear. So when people are proud, you, it often manifests itself as anger, but the root of that is usually fear because we don't know, am I actually adequate? And am I able? Am I capable? And so we promote, we promote, we promote ourselves. Or sometimes when we're kind of uncertain, is this all there is to life? Then I better make a lot of noise going through. It's fear. So no matter what the root is, whether it's foolishness or fear or whether it's something else, the result is always the same. And the Bible calls it actually an abomination, right? Pride is an abomination because at its root, pride is it's false worship. That's an abomination. And that's not appropriate. Only God should be worshiped. And so God has to, for our benefit, move us out of pride toward humility. Because that's true. That's wisdom. So God is always moving us that direction, crushing our pride and moving us to humility for our good. Because the Bible tells us someday there's going to be this great reversal. The world might now praise pride and exalt pride and denigrate humility as weakness, but God says someday that will be reversed. And in God's economy, humility is valued and pride is debased. Listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 17. The Lord says, All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will perform it. Do we believe him? Do we believe him that this is how life actually will end when God sets all things right? And are we willing to live now consistently with what God says is true? Or as Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, everyone who, hum who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Be exalted. This is how life actually will work. Which path will we choose? Pride or humility? So here's the reward, the reward of humility. Again, if we're uh, defining our terms, if, if, if pride is exalting, lifting up, boasting, humility is literally in Hebrew to crouch down, to go low. Uh, so by which I mean not uh, thinking poorly of yourself, but thinking accurately of yourself in light of who God is. Again, it says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, 
but with the humble is wisdom. So Solomon is saying, humility is wisdom and wisdom is humility, right? These are equated. This is seeing life as it actually truly is. Or quoting again here from Andrew Murray, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as human beings and yielding to God his place. Let God be God and we're creatures made in his image. And when I see God as he actually is, then I begin to see myself as I am. Remember in the book of Job, uh, Job suffers, and then Job, in his frustration, he enters into this lengthy debate with his friends, and then a lengthy debate with God, and some people brand Job as uh, an answer to why do the righteous suffer, but I don't think that's the point of Job. Actually, at the end of Job, Job doesn't get an answer to the question, why do the righteous suffer? Instead, what Job gets is he gets this fresh and exalted vision of the God he worships. And then the conversation ends, right? So chapter 42, verse six, Job declares finally, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job says, ah, I, I knew about you secondhand. Now I understand a little bit more about who you are firsthand. I think I'm just gonna stop. I see you as you are. And then as a result, Job is able to see himself as he is. Right? See myself in relationship to God. I see myself accurately and truly. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So what's the reward of humility? The reward of humility is a deeper intimacy with God because I'm actually seeing God as he is and as a result seeing myself as I am and I can know God better right? because I'm seeing myself as I am. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. To this one I will look, God says in, in Isaiah 61, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one who will have intimacy with me. So when I understand who God is, I see myself in light of God. I would argue humble people then become the most confident and the most secure, right? Confident without slipping over into pride because if you see yourself in light of who God is, then you understand you're, you're a creature made in the image of God, in the image of God. Do you get that? In the image of God. There, there are no other creatures on earth that are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God, and you are valuable to God. In fact, so valuable that even though you have broken fellowship with him and you have sinned, God values you so much that he was willing to give what he valued most, that is his relationship with his son. He's willing to allow his son to take on human flesh, to bear your sins, to experience separation from him on the cross because he values you that much. And if God created you and he created value, that is its true value. We are valuable. Because God says we're valuable and because God demonstrated our value by giving Jesus for our sins, that, that should give us incredible confidence, not pride because we're broken and sinful, but value because we're made in the image of God and rescued by Jesus. And so people who are genuinely humble, I would argue, are people who are deeply confident without being arrogant or proud. It's one of the rewards of genuine humility and intimacy with God, an understanding of self that allows us to be confident in who we are before the Lord. And then I would argue it also allows us to see others around us as they are. Right? Because if I'm seeing myself as I am, then I'm seeing others as they are. 
And I'm regarding them as creatures who are also made in the image of God. Now, when I was, um, when I was living in Dallas, uh, I lived there for four years, but two of those years I lived in just a terrible neighborhood. Just a really, really run-down neighborhood. Uh, everything you can imagine happening in a neighborhood, that was in our neighborhood. It was a lot, a, lot of, a lot of violence, a lot of drugs, just, I mean, just rough stuff. Every time I came home, I was stepping around, passing by homeless people, stepping over homeless people. I had a guy who every, just almost every night he would get a drunk, pass out underneath my window, and, you know, just 3 a.m. he's snoring. I had to go wake him up and move him to another bush. I mean, it was just, it was just a really, really, really difficult neighborhood. And I, I discovered that after a while, I, I found my heart, I just felt like I was starting to get kind of hard because uh, the homeless people I interacted with all started telling me exactly the same story. And I realized, you know, and they'd forget that they had told me that story before, and then I'd hear the same story again and again. And I'm like, you know, all of this is made up. I'm like, no, you don't have a car. Like literally one time I told this guy, no, you don't have a car that ran out of gas two blocks around the corner. You don't own a car. And I could just feel my heart getting really hard and I felt convicted, like, Lord, I don't, know how, I don't know how to think and feel and act toward the people that I'm living among here in this neighborhood. And, and you know, it wasn't an audible voice, but I felt like the Lord was saying to me, I, I made that person in my image. Okay, in my image. Made in my image, made in my likeness. And as I begin to think and, and, and see them through that lens, it forced me to step back and, and, and to kind of contemplate what, what happened in this person's story that the image of God could be so shattered. And it slowed me down and I, and I interacted more deeply. I didn't always get uh, the true story. A lot of times they, they couldn't even remember the true story because so many of the people who were living around me who were on the street, it's mental illness. Um, kind of dig in, what, what happened to, in your life and in your story, you know, things that were done to you or decisions that you made in your brokenness or phys- physical, physiological, mental illness. And I began to see, you know, uh, that could be me. That could be me. You know, I could have been born with mental illness. I could have made some, even some choices that were negative himself. People could have made choices against me. I could be in this same place. And I began to, every time I'd see a person, I'd say, made in the image of God. And then the second thing that I felt like the Lord was telling me was this. Uh, say to yourself, for whom Christ died. God still values that person so much that he sent his only begotten son to remove their debt of sin so that they could have a restored relationship with me. And so every time I would see one of these folks, I would stop, I'd look them in the eyes, and I'd say to myself, made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Made in the image of God for whom Christ died. And I could no longer look at them in a sense as a, in a condescending way even in their brokenness, even if some of the, the reason they'd made, they were in this condition was because the choices they made, they still were made in the image of God, and these are people for whom Christ died. And it completely shifted. So as I, you know, in a sense, see God more as he is, I see myself as I am, broken and yet valued, and then I begin to see the people around me in the same way, broken and yet valued by God, and it just shifts my whole worldview, and I begin to live consistent with truth, consistent with reality. It's one of the rewards of humility. But one of the other rewards is that God so values humility that he exalts the humble, right? He honors the humble. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 23. 
Proverbs 29, verse 23 says this. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Maybe not in this life, but eventually, because God values humility. Or as Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God says, I promise, this is how things will eventually turn out. There will be a reversal. So we study in the book of James last semester, last year. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He promises. Do you believe him? Or as Peter said, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So, again, it's really natural for us to want to be seen, to want to be known, for our lives to be valued. The question is this, uh, in, in whose eyes do you want to be great? And when do you want to be great? And do you trust God that his evaluation is true and enduring and lasting? So will you choose God's path, which means go low. Choose humility, not pride. Keep God in his proper place. See yourself in God's eyes, others around you the same. Do you believe the Lord? So how do we apply this? I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. Going back to James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. The starting point is the gospel. The gospel is a, is a very humbling proposition, right? Because you come to the cross, and to really understand the gospel, you come with completely empty hands, and you say to the Lord, I have nothing to bring. I'm not going to try to earn your favor. I don't deserve your favor. I don't, I don't deserve forgiveness and reconciliation. My hands are empty. I just need to receive Jesus. That's what faith is. It's, it's receiving a gift. So the gospel is the starting point. If you've never had that moment before the Lord where you just said to God, yes, thank you, I offer you nothing, I just received the gift of Jesus to remove my debt of sin. Let me encourage you this morning that you start at that place. That's, that's the beginning point of a life of humility. It's the cross. Uh, second, I want to challenge you to, to, in a sense, kind of change the script that's going on in your mind. I, I, you know, I think it's just our nature to be condescending. We find people around us that we can, in a sense, look down on, even if it's, it's for something silly like the way that they drive. Ah, you know, man, they, we, we just, it's just in our nature. I want you to flip the script a little bit. Whether it's the way somebody drives or they're homeless on the street or the way that they dress or look or the job they have. What, made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Just start practicing that, rehearsing that. Every person that you interact with I'm going to say that's also going to drive us toward being more active in sharing our faith. Because when we think, made in the image of God for whom Christ died, but do they know Jesus? Maybe the, the reason they're treating me poorly or treating the people around them poorly is because they don't know Jesus. Made in the image of God for whom Christ died. And a third application point is this. Uh, start serving. Uh, your heart may really resist, in a sense, wanting to choose humility, but if you find people around you who need to be served and you just start choosing to serve them, expecting nothing in return, that act of service will begin to bend your heart toward humility. Okay? Your heart will follow. Uh, the beautiful thing is that uh, the creator of the universe actually gave us his example, which is truly stunning that uh, the creator of the universe chose to serve the creatures he'd made. Beautiful illustration of this is John chapter 13. 
where Jesus went around and washed all of his disciples' feet, even Judas. That's just a stunning illustration. Even at that point in time, they couldn't see all of his glory, but they knew he was the rabbi, and they weren't serving him or serving one another. Jesus washed all their feet, and at the end, having washed all their feet and sat back down with them, and they're all feeling completely awkward and uncomfortable, he said, what I just did for you, I want you to do for one another. Follow my example. And then, of course, the ultimate illustration is Jesus giving his life for us on the cross. So what I want us to do as we close is we're going we're to celebrate that uh, example, that illustration of Jesus dying on the cross for us by celebrating communion together. Um, as you came in, you should have gotten a cup so we can all celebrate uh, together. You don't have to be a member of Grace Bible Church to celebrate communion here, just a, just a follower of Jesus. So uh, if you didn't get a cup on the way in, if you would raise your hand real quick. We've got some servers who will uh, get some cups for you. Got a bunch of them down here. Uh, on the front, and we'll wait until everybody's served. So as we're waiting for everyone to be served, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Doug, we got some right down here. All right, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after a meal, and he said, every time you uh, share a meal together, I want you to, to take the bread, and in the breaking of the bread, I want you to... Think of the bread as my body broken for you, my physical suffering, creator of the universe, being willing to be broken so that you could be reconciled to the Father. Do this in remembrance of me. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This cup is a reminder Every time you take it, that I suffered and I sacrificed, even to the point of giving my life, pouring out my blood for the removal of your sin and reconciling you to the Father. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for condescending toward us, toward 
being willing to, to pursue us even in our, our brokenness and our shame, uh, choosing to not leave us as we are, but instead allowing your son to come and fix what's broken through his death and his burial and his resurrection. I pray, uh, Father, that in our gratitude, we would also see our opportunity to imitate Jesus, to live like Jesus, uh, to love others around us like Jesus, to walk in humility and pride. I pray that we would see ourselves in light of, of, of who you are and, and how you've made us, that we are in your image, that we are valuable to you. We're also broken like the people around us. And all that we have that's good in our lives is a gift from you. I pray, Father, that as a result, we see people around us differently. We walk uh, in humility and sacrificial service toward them because uh, Jesus has shown us the way. I pray, Father, this week that we would have courage. Follow the path of humility, not the path of pride. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.